0: Welcome to Right to the Point, a podcast with Tim Throckmorton, president of Life Point Ministries. And we want to invite you to, uh, each and every week, tune in to what's happening here. Uh, check out lifepointeusa.org for uh, more information on LifePoint Ministries and for past editions of Right to the Point commentary and Right to the Point podcast. So uh, we're, we're glad you've joined us today. We're going to talk about On this particular edition of Right to the Point, we're going to talk about Christianity, we're going to talk about cultural issues, we're going to talk about politics, and to do so I have invited a very good friend and colleague from the Family Research Council where I serve as the National Director for Community Engagement, and I am just delighted as I can be to welcome David Clawson. David Clawson serves as the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at the Family Research Council. He researches and writes on life, human sexuality, religious liberty, and related issues from a biblical worldview, and has also authored many of the Biblical Worldview series pieces that FRC's produced. Welcome
1: to uh, the program, David. Well, oh, Tim, it's a joy to be on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be with you, brother, here in your home state of Ohio. Yes, we are in Ohio. <laughs> uh, this, this
0: podcast can be created anywhere, and so uh, here in Ohio, glad to have you here. you got a lot of friends here, by the mm-hmm. way, I know, and you're just uh, right at home. We'll, we'll claim you after a few times. We're, we're just uh, good Midwestern folks here. <laughs> I'll take it. Well, speaking of mid the Midwest, sometimes life in the Midwest and those in the Midwest are taken aback, a little surprised by what happens. Uh, not just in culture, but especially when it lands on our front doorsteps. Where in Ohio in the last year or two, the pride uh, displays and and drag queen issues at, at libraries, um, the teaching of critical race theory in public schools, and, of course, girls' sports and the things that are happening around the country that seem to be coming to a school near you. David, you've observed this for some time. Uh, You have uh, always um, been faithful to present a biblical perspective. For those who are just realizing, hey, it's in Ohio as well as anywhere else, (laughs) how can you bring uh, comfort and perspective (laughs) to that?
1: Yeah, well, let's start with the perspective first, I guess. Um, it, it is true, Tim. It seems that uh, almost overnight, um, the, the cultural mores and norms uh, that I think a lot of us took for granted have been overturned, uh, seemingly just in a moment. Um, you know, one of the reasons Family Research Council, where we both uh, work, uh, started the Center for Biblical Worldview, was because you know, in, we're actually in the fortieth year of frc founded in 1983 in a prayer meeting that james dobson was leading actually so we're in the 40th anniversary of frc so we've always approached issues whether it's political issues cultural issues through the lens of a biblical worldview uh, but in 2021 at the very beginning of the year uh, the lord put it on our on tony perkins on his heart the president of frc that we need to be doing even more uh, when it comes to really engaging these issues, many of which you just mentioned, Tim, from a biblical worldview. So that's why we started the Center for Biblical Worldview in May of 2021. We launched uh, by partnering with George Barna to do a major nationwide survey, just what is the pulse of the worldview of our friends and neighbors here in this country? And, Tim, you've heard me share this around the country at pastor's meetings that we've done in Texas and North Carolina and Georgia and all really all over the place. But what we found in that poll was that although uh, – of Americans think they have a biblical worldview. When you actually actually measure it, you you drill down into beliefs and practices, it's actually 6%. What was even more astounding to me, though, is when George took that poll to evangelical churches and found out that although 81% of those who faithfully attend evangelical churches think they have a biblical worldview, again, once you measure it uh, for beliefs and practices, it's actually 21%. And so I think, Tim, you know, with the rise of all the different issues that you've mentioned, uh, I want to go to the source of it, uh, not just treat the symptoms, but treat the source. And it really does come down to this divergence in in worldview that we see.
0: Okay. So for those who really haven't used that word Mm -hmm. much in their lifetime, or even maybe they started hearing it a few years ago, really for me is probably around 2013 or 14, I started hearing the, the word, paired with biblical
1: so what's what is a worldview and what is a biblical worldview yeah no that's that and that's the key question right there and I'm actually looking forward to while we're here in Ohio to, to presenting on this very topic to students at Ohio Christian University and then God's Bible school down in the Cincinnati area so let's start with worldview a worldview is simply kind of the lens through which you look at the world uh, I've always defined it defined the term worldview as really those fundamental assumptions and beliefs that you have about what is true, about what is right, uh, about what is wrong. Uh, And the way I really boil it down, Tim, is I think every worldview, whether you use the term worldview or philosophy of life or what what have you, every worldview I think has to answer four basic questions. Again, whether it's a biblical worldview, an Islamic worldview, a pantheistic worldview, a naturalistic worldview, what have you, I think every worldview has to answer four basic questions. Number one, why is there something rather than nothing? Every thinking person has to have an answer to that question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Number two is what's gone wrong in the world? And again, you don't have to spend much time, whether it's Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, to just look what is unfolding in our, our world and realize something's gone deeply wrong. Um, that leads right into the third question, which is, is there any hope? Is there any way to, to make sense? Is there any way to, to put, make right what is, what is wrong? And then the fourth question that every thinking person needs to answer and confront and every worldview needs to furnish an answer for is where, where is all this headed? What's the telos? Where, where is this going to go? So those four questions, why is there something rather than nothing? What's gone wrong? Is there any hope? And where is all this headed? And so the second part of your question, Tim, what is a biblical worldview? Well, just we have to, how does the Christian worldview, how does the Bible answer those four questions? Well, uh, why, why is there something rather than nothing? Oh, Genesis 1-1, God. The Bible answers that right out of the gate. Uh, Second, uh, what's gone wrong in the world? Well, goodness, (laughs) Genesis 3, the the fall. Uh, Is there any hope, that third question? Well, Christians say yes. There is hope, and hope has a name. It's the person of Jesus Christ.
0: Amen.
1: And where is all this headed, that fourth question? Well, ultimately, a new heavens and a new earth. So, again, a biblical worldview looks at everything that's happening, all the big questions that all of us ask, and it holds up the Bible in that kind of that four question framework I just held held up, and that's kind of what I would argue is the fundamental tenets of a biblical worldview. So our good friend George Barna has a taught he's taught me many
0: words. One of them is syncretistic. Yes. So in in America we have such a unique culture. We we've we've been blessed or uh, entrusted with freedom, which is a Really a hard thing to be entrusted with. And so here many beliefs have flourished. In some nations, it may just be one or two, uh, but really the whole world now is kind of falling into this thing. So, so syn- syncretistic, kind of explain what that means because I think
1: it's relevant yes. to who we are and how we deal with people here. Well, it's massively important. Tim, so I just said you know a second ago, based on that polling that we did with George Barna, that six percent of Americans have what you would call a biblical worldview. Well, that raises the question, what about the other 94% of our friends and neighbors? What do they most fundamentally believe? And the answer to that question for 88% of Americans, what George found is that they did believe in what you would call a synchronistic worldview. So, so what does that mean? Well, it really means they have no compre- comprehensive, uh, holistic worldview. It's kind of the way George describes it. He describes it as a smorgasbord, kind of a cafeteria approach. And so essentially 88%, so the overwhelming majority of Americans, the worldview they hold is really just whatever feels right, whatever they just kind of, they might hear a, a, a sermon and like an idea they hear there. They watch TV. They, they pick up an idea there. And so it's really, uh, again, a syncretistic worldview. It might, not, it might be very contradictory. It might be incoherent. It might not hold together, but mo- and it, it doesn't. But most Americans are either unaware of that or even if they are aware of it, they're unbothered by it. Do you, do you ever think back,
0: and maybe there's not an answer here, but <clears throat> how? At what point did we lose uh, somewhat of a, a biblical worldview? Uh, back when you know, when I began pastoring in 1996, there were just a couple of issues that really plagued. Uh, Churchgoers or, or people in America that you dealt with, and not that you preached at them, but you know, really, those are the things people came to you. This is what's tearing me apart, or breaking my heart, or tearing up my family. But but now it's so vast and so so, uh, and, and not just things. I'm not just talking about things. I'm talking about ideas that are leading people astray, causing confusion.
1: How far back do you think that goes? Yeah, I think a simplistic answer would be the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And I think there's a lot to say for the way we think about sexuality and gender and marriage and tracing that to a lot of the things that happened in the 1960s. But uh, by now, it's a couple of years ago, Carl Truman came out with a book called the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And what Truman says, he says, yeah, the 60s weren't great for a lot of things. But the kind of the, the decline that we're on right now with our worldview and whatnot, you need to go back even further um, into the 17th century, 18th century, with the rise of philosophies that exalted the self, that made the self the center of the world, and so I think really again, yeah, 1960s there was stuff that happened, uh, 1920s with theological liberalism and German higher criticism coming in. So the theological liberalism, that's not you know, politically conservative or liberal, but theolo- theological liberalism, just the idea that a lot of t- Protestant churches uh, became embarrassed with certain theological uh, doctrines. Uh, you had uh, whole denominations all of a sudden become embarrassed with things like the virgin birth yeah. or the yeah. resurrection or the idea of miracles. And so even in the 1920s, again, I'm thinking of different Episcopal uh, churches, Presbyterian USA churches, kind of the mainline Protestant denominations, when you started having leaders in those churches really become embarrassed. And again, I mentioned the virgin birth because, you know, you had people, again, coming over from Germany and coming over from Europe saying, well, we know how babies are conceived, and that, surely that's a fable. Surely you don't really believe that. And so when you started jettisoning a lot of those core Doctrines of the 1920s. Well, eventually, uh, the next generation. It wasn't at all surprising when those pastors and those leaders began giving up things like marriage or the sanctity of human life. So again, I think there's a lot in here. I would commend Carl Truman's book, though, that really traces the, kind of the philosophy behind behind this idea that the modern self has replaced uh, where the, the kind of the throne. Of our hearts, where God, you know, used to exist in kind of the, the worldview that dominated American thinking. Now it's that that personal self that we've put on that throne,
0: and it's a, uh, it, it's the inclination of mankind to drift in that direction. Now our founders gave us something that's unique, and I love American history talking about or thinking about how unique we are in the history of the world, not just in the. In, in all of the world's histories, but in the entire history of the world, this is a unique place. You know, Europe took took a particular direction, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, the Enlightenment, headed in, but it was almost like there was a reset here, and there was a hearkening back to some principles that were fading out there. You know, if you just want to par- compare the American Revolution to the French Revolution, you see <laughs> how that played out. Yes. But, but then, then here with all of the blessings and then the fruit of those blessings, uh, we have headed into this 20th century uh, with, uh, w- with vulnerabilities that led to outcomes. You mentioned the 60s. And so here we are. And, and so with where we are today mm-hmm. and what pastors and churches and the grandmothers that are going to hear this podcast, the, the folks that tune in that have children or grandchildren uh, and they're worried about them, how do we bring me some hope here? You know, because how do we speak to this, how do we address it, and how do we
1: hopefully overcome this? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, you know, I heard someone saying, you know, how do you eat an elephant, it's one bite at a time, or something like that. And I think, yeah, the statistics that I just kind of rattled off, you know, only 81% of Americans think they have a biblical worldview, or those who attend church, but it's only 21%, or the public at large It's only 6%. Those can seem like overwhelming things. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the Lord gives us all different callings. He gives us all different skills and opportunities and experiences. And he doesn't require the same thing of all of us, Tim. But what the Lord does require of all of us is to be faithful in our spheres of influence. And for, you know, your sphere of influence, it might just be with your spouse or with your children or with, with your grandchildren. I think all of us actually have a sphere of influence that's larger than we think. I'm actually Good con- point. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. And so even like you said that the grandmother that might be listening to this well what kind of sphere of influence do I have? Oh my. I would just say dear sister you probably have uh, influence in your community and in your family that's uh, a lot longer or a lot larger and extends further than you think. And so what I w- what I would say the kind of the hope uh, Tim is that you know the Lord doesn't ask each and every one of us to go change the culture. That just seems kind of nebulous and ethereal kind of out there. Let's go change the culture. But let's be faithful and change our families. I'm thinking of Deuteronomy 6. I'm going through the book of Deuteronomy right now actually a chapter every day with my fiance. Um, and we got to Deuteronomy chapter 6 where you know a central chapter there that when Moses is preaching to the people of Israel they're about to go to the promised land and he tell he commands the, the the families the mothers and the fathers to make sure that they pass on the commandments to their children you talk of them as you walk along the street as you come into the house as you lie down to go to bed. And so I think the hope for America, the hope for the Christian church is that faithful Christian people do the things that Jesus has commanded us to do, the things that the Bible tells us to do, to cultivate that worldview in our homes, to go make disciples in our communities, in our churches. I think of each one of I think of Nehemiah, Tim. I know you love that story of Nehemiah. You know, he commanded everyone just to focus on the part that was directly in front of yeah. their house. Yeah. And if all of us do that, I think the, the cumulative effort of that will be changed Churches and families and communities. Amen. Amen. Well, see, that's one of the reasons for this podcast.
0: It's not that we need another podcast, there's plenty of them out there. But I want to take the issues for those who see politics and religion or the church and government and say, you know what, we just got to be careful here. And so many, many feel that we can't speak to this. However, there is a government that is affecting the culture mm-hmm. and trying to affect the church and is affecting the church. And, and if we're not careful, we'll lose everything because we don't want to do anything. And, and I don't want to see that happen. And for the good people right. who, hey, I just want to know what to do and where do I start? How do I begin? this is why this is important. And that's why the Center for Biblical Worldview is, is one of the, has been one of the most uh, joyful things for me to share around the country. Mm-hmm. Because everyone lights up when you begin to talk about this.
1: Yeah, well, and I I appreciate that, Tim. That's so kind. I know you've been one of our biggest cheerleaders, especially here in the Midwest, but even beyond the Midwest. You know, one thing I want to make sure I mention, because I do want to to give people hope and uh, make sure that people, you know, are not feeling despair. Because, you, you, gosh, you watch the news. Again, wherever you see your news from, there's a lot of things to be disheartened about. Um, But, you know, again, focusing on our own families, focusing on our own churches, there are tremendous opportunities, and there's work that we need to be doing in our own communities. Some Sometimes I think we think, well, the culture's falling apart, and there's despair there. Well, we need to look actually within our own walls and our families and our churches. We've already referenced him a couple of times, but George Barnum did a poll in 2020 where he actually uh, asked questions to those who regularly attended churches. So this isn't the people out there. This is the people in the four walls of the church on what they believed uh, the Bible taught about abortion and abortion those who regularly attend church, Tim, 44% told George uh, that they believe the Bible was ambiguous when it came to abortion. You know, right now, you and I are sitting here recording this around the 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision, and we can celebrate its demise now. But we have to be honest that there's a lot of Christians and a lot of churches uh, that don't speak up about that issue. They're confused about the issue. And that confusion and that reluctancy to speak about it, I think, creates statistics like George finds with 44% of evangelicals thinking the Bible is ambiguous about it. And so that's where I think pastors and parents, let's not be afraid to talk about the issue. Because I think, let me add, last point I'll make on this to Tim, is I think sometimes we think of, oh, you know, if we talk about this, well, we'll be seen as outdated or bigoted or weird. Well, the issues related to sexuality in life they are being talked about. Our children and grandchildren are going to hear about these issues, whether it's on YouTube or online or at school. And so why should we not be talking about these really important, sensitive issues within the four walls of our homes and our churches? Because if we don't do it here, our kids and grandkids, they'll still hear about it, but their worldview is going to be shaped by somebody that's not you.
0: Fantastic segue, because thats I kept thinking as you were you were heading in that direction of a... Uh, Barna uh, in, in Texas, I think it was in San Antonio, maybe it was Houston, last year we were in Houston, and I, I remember him kind of just unpacking this scenario of a child who's trying to figure out life, and y- you know, you can't, you can't give what you don't have, you can't share what you don't possess, and so a child between the ages of two and 13, they're forming that worldview, and in that time, they're looking at their parents yes. or they're looking at their caregiver. They're looking at somebody. They're, every child looks at somebody. And, and if that person doesn't know, this is why I think, you know, building your own walls. Nehemiah said, I think, it's got to be in here first. We have to have individually a war, biblical worldview so that we can share it and give it. We have to have that ourselves. You're studying Deuteronomy, and, and, and I, I commend you for that. Our founders love that, and Jesus loved Deuteronomy too. You know, this, is, this is where the, the, you're going back and going deeper into the law and why it's there. So if you don't have that, this is where millions of children look at their parents and say, well, they don't understand either. They're trying to figure it out. I'll just listen to the counselor at school, or I'll listen yes. to TikTok or whatever. And so this is, that's, that's
1: terrifying to me. No, no, it is terrifying. And I think what you just mentioned, and George did share this when you were in Houston, and he's actually been doing this kind of research for decades. This isn't just one off poll that he did. He's been doing this for a long time. But he actually wanted to know the question, when is a child's worldview actually formed? And, and the research shows that at between 18 months which that seems so young. My my niece, I have one niece. My sister has a, a sweet baby girl, Elise, and she's just turned one. And so I'm thinking, wow, in six more months, she's already going to be at that 18-mark threshold. But the worldview between 18 months and 13-year of age. Now, of course, our worldview will refine. It will get a little bit more nuanced as we go through our teenage years and into our, the 20s. But relatively speaking, George has shown that kind of the, the basic orientation that you have towards life when you're 13, that'll pretty much stick with you uh, throughout your lifetime. Now, I've shared that, Tim, actually in settings around the country, and I want to be careful to immediately say just because maybe you have a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old, that doesn't mean it's too late for them. Uh, We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the power of uh, God, um, but speaking generally and speaking broadly, what you believe when you're about 13 years old, relatively speaking, is how you'll approach life and so the, 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 those years are so key, so formative. Yeah,
0: and if and if you don't have that to share, I mean, I I was blessed growing up in a home where I just being around conversations, working with my dad, learning things, it was just second nature. But there's a there's an entire culture that would, that is a single parent or no parents, or if they have two, sometimes two. And, but they don't have a biblical worldview so this is where this is lacking and so those stats are reflected in real people who have children and I think it's around five percent or less of parents in America of children in that in that 2 to to 13 uh, that have a biblical worldview so yeah. it's greatly needed if you were a pastor I mean as a pastor what what can pastors practically do to yeah. add value to I, I'd say their parents, uh, or uh,
1: childbearing age uh, sure. people in their church? Yeah, first and foremost, directly to parents, I would say root your life in the rhythms and routines of a local church. I, I you know, I'm, how oh, gosh, I almost blanked on how old I am. I'm 31 years old, so still relatively <laughs> <laughs> too young to forget how old I am, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, my friends are in their late 20s, early 30s. And I think those who have maybe fallen away from the church kind of view church as, oh, that's something my parents do or my grandparents do. And their approach to church is pretty lackadaisical. If you're, you know, again, whatever age you are, but especially if you're, you're my age, start, put the, you know, as an adult now, root your life in a local church. because, And I, I have noticed, Tim, some of my friends who are, again, late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, into their late 30s are realizing that they're now, you know, they're now they're having their own children, becoming parents, and it's like, oh my goodness, I really need to make sure I get my life together. And I'm seeing them joining local churches. So first and foremost, again, root your life in a local church where the rhythms and routines of your of your week uh, is surrounded by people with similar views who will encourage you, who will rebuke you, who will correct you. I think that that's absolutely key. And then to the pastor's perspective, uh, Tim. Again, this is something that I think is so basic, but God's Word is sufficient. And so what I, what I tell pastors is just preach the Word, brother. You don't need to get up there and tell funny stories or or try to be well-liked or anything. Just you preach the Word and let God's Spirit through the preached Word do the work. Now, preach expositionally. Uh, yes, go through yes, books of the yes. Bible. I think there is a time and a place for topical sermons, but I think they should be few and far between, I think. The, 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 what your people need is they need Bible. They yes. need God's word. And so just preach through a, a book, uh, whether, you know do Romans, then go find something in the Old Testament. But people are dying for the word. Yes. The, the, this country is full of churches that are dying because the pulpits are dying.
0: Yeah, yeah. Somebody asked me well, years ago, how, how can I grow my church? I said, become an expositor. Mm. When you preach uh, expositional sermons that's attractive yes people are drawn to that it may not happen overnight but they will be drawn to that and you're going to make your congregation healthier spiritually you'll you'll and you'll be without without planning it you're going to be discipling people <laughs> as you go yes and and i i teased i was teasing george one time i said you know i can fix this whole thing he said what do you mean i said know, yes, you, you give us these stats you're uh, Tease him about being depressing. I said, "You give us these stats." I said, "The answer is in the Bible. It's make disciples, because when you have a disciple, there's that's a biblical worldview, and so th- this is what can help." Well, look, I, we got about about three minutes, and I want to um, I, I want to kind of ch- switch gears because the uniqueness of our time is you're, you're getting married here, and um, and and you you're a smart young man. I know your bride smart young lady, you guys have already thought ahead, and you probably begun to think about your children uh, and, yeah. and how you're going to approach this with them, because uh, I know you. <laughs> yeah. And so this is where, you know, if you're intentional about whatever, you're, you're going to be more apt to be successful. And so with, with what, what do you say to those who are kind of where you are? Uh, you haven't. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you just gotten married. What do you say to those parents? Because they look at childbearing and they think, "Man, I don't know. This is a rough world." Uh, what do you say?
1: Uh, yeah, I would acknowledge it is a rough world, <laughs> but you know, the Lord has called us to be the chief disciple makers in our home. I yeah. think every every parent, I think Tim should again. You just use the disciple word. I think every parent needs to view themselves first and foremost as a disciple maker. And so just, just speaking, you know, what Lord willing, when Abby and I get married in April and whenever the Lord blesses us with a family, you know, I've already tried to put things in place in our life, um, as such as moving, uh, we just closed on a house in a nice neighborhood uh, with several church families. We did that intentionally. We mm-hmm. found a neighborhood with about seven or eight, I think it's, yeah, about eight, seven or eight families with young children who all go to the same church, <laughs> many of them are homeschooling families. Yeah. Uh, we want to homeschool. I don't think everyone necessarily needs to homeschool. We, we think we're again, we're engaged right now. We don't even have kids, but we're already making plans to homeschool, which means I'm thinking of ways to bring in side income for our family. So, that, again, Lord willing, when we're Lord blesses with children, my wife won't have to work. Uh, and again, I think I know some. We work at FRC with with women who work, and that's that's fine. I think for our family, though, we think it'll be best for Abby to stay at home to be able to homeschool those children in a community with other homeschooled children uh, that are all rooted in Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Yeah. And so I think those are some of the things that even when Abby and I were dating, uh, as we're just trying to see is this is this a right match? What are our values? Do they align? And just talking about, you know, rooting our life in a church and in a community of like-minded believers and how are we going to disciple our children well. And, again, we'll take this to the Lord every single year and ask for his guidance and direction. I think my own parents modeled that well for me. But I think those are a couple of things that even, again, I'm not even married yet right now, Tim, but I'm thinking about ways that if the Lord blesses us with children, what are ways that I can make sure that I'm, as the man, as the leader and the protector and provider, doing that in a way that spiritually I can bless my wife and future children. Amen.
0: Amen. David Clausen, it's been a joy to have you with us. Uh, you are uh, a part of this incredible, credible part of the F- uh, Family Research Council, the Center for Biblical World. You thank you for the influence that God's given you. Thank you for the lasting influence that God has entrusted to you and your faithfulness to that, because I think. Uh, uh, our nation. our my, my grandchildren have hope for a better nation because of guys like you. So thanks for the difference you make. Uh, FRC.org backslash worldview is where folks can go. And when we post this, uh, we're going to have that on there so they can track that down as well. So David, thanks for taking the time. God bless you. And you have joined me for, and this is the inaugural Uh, edition of
1: Right to the Point podcast. So thanks for being a part of it, buddy. Well, thank you, Tim, for uh, the honor of being on. And Maybe we set the bar really low or maybe we set the bar really high. So uh, the listeners can be the judge of that. But, uh, Tim, thank you for your friendship, brother. It's a joy to be with you, to work with you, and to be on the podcast. Amen. Thank you.